Yo, welcome to Peace of No Mind. My name is Raymond Tanner and this is the podcast where I'll be interviewing amazing individuals as I find out what a peace of mind means to them and some of the valuable lessons they've learned throughout their journey. Each episode has been recorded at a different stage throughout lockdown, pandemic, just overall COVID living. If you like this podcast, make sure to hit me up, subscribe, send it to a colleague, send it to a friend, just send it on and follow me on socials at Peace of No Mind Show on Instagram and Peace of No Mind on Twitter. Anywho, it's been a minute. I would like to welcome Tal Booker. You describe yourself as a London-based polyhyphenated creative. What an, mate? What? Where? Where? where polyhyphenated, bro, bro, man. Where did I'm you here. Find that? Listen, why is it up there? The question's not where did I find it. It's where is it? Like, where is it? I think. Do you know what? I think. I think a lot's happened since I called myself that. So I might. I might need to change that title. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. Mate, neither did I. I was kind of hoping that you were going to like unpack it. You'll be like, well, it means that I'm like skilled in like five, six different disciplines and so forth. Nah, you need to tell me where that is. (laughs) (laughs) Bro, it's on your Twitter. It is on your Twitter. It's on your Twitter. On my Twitter? Yeah, on your bio. I'm sure I didn't even have a Twitter anymore. Or you're easily just brushing away the fact that you call yourself a polyhyphenated creative, which is fine, bro. Uh, Do you know what? I reckon I definitely did at one point in my life. But like I said, a lot's changed. That's not how I call myself now. Oh, man, mate, look, if anyone can see the Zoom, he's gone bright red. He's really embarrassed. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm playing, man. Um, so what would you, how would you describe it as yourself and what is it you do? I'm a creative person. Um, I have always been a creative person. Um, I do freelance design, creative design for kind of various people. I work as a brand manager for a protein drinks company full time. Um, I do a bit of art on the side. I... Yeah, that's that's polyhyphenated. Mate, you have to own it sometimes. If it is what it is, yeah. if it says it in the tin, then it's what that's it, it says. Right, cool. I'm a polyhyphenated individual. This is so that, it, that's where that's what I do day to day. Um I guess I'm also I'm also a recovering addict. Um being an addict and being in recovery is such a big part of my life now. Then if someone asks me what it is that I do and like what I am. That is that is up there with one of the most important things because without acknowledging that, I don't have anything else. So that's something that I kind of like to get out there. And it's also it allows me to get comfortable with that as well because it's kind of a scary scary title to give yourself. But the more the more I share it, the more I say it, it kind of just allows me to feel more comfortable and to kind of normalise it a little bit as well. But then do, let's say you're in normal interactions and you just meet, let's say you were to meet me for the first time, would you be like, cool, I'm a polyhyphenated creative and an addict? <laughs> I think without saying it, it would probably come up pretty early okay. on. Um, yeah, I mean, as soon as you're in a social situation, someone's having a drink and someone someone wants to know if you want to have a drink and I'm like, I don't drink. And then they're like, what do you mean you don't drink? Do you know what I mean? Like, you'd be surprised at how early on that conversation comes up. 
especially when you don't do these things. Because you don't necessarily express what it was that you would ad- were addicted to, or like, and I'm sure we can touch on that a bit later. But so for someone, they're running wild in their head when someone's like, "Yo, I'm an addict." Yeah, like, yeah, cool, yeah. bro. Like, there's a lot. Yeah. Of, there's a lot of things in this city, and there's a lot of yeah. ways to be addicted to things. Like, definitely. But um, honestly, like, and I know you're at work at the moment, and I can see the beautiful backdrop that is brick walls. Um, I just wanted to know because how, how have you been like handling the last few months more so like the lockdown period because you're actually out and active it doesn't maybe feel the same way as it had do do you know what i mean initially it was a very hard thing to adjust to for me which i'm sure it was for most people um but i think i'm very good at isolating so if someone tells me i need to isolate you won't ever see me again (laughs) that's how good i am so like it kind of came it came quite naturally to me to kind of stay inside and and do that stuff which isn't necessarily a, a good thing but like you know, the kind of person that I am, I'm very, uh, you know, I've, I've learned to be good at isolating. Mm-hmm. Um, but the trick is to, ice, to, to, um, to kind of isolate in your surroundings, but not isolate in yourself. And, you know, I was working from home throughout, you know, for a good three months, however long it was. And I don't do well with that in that environment. I need structure. I need to know when I'm getting up in the morning. I need to, you know, get up at the same time every day. I need to leave the house and kind of go about my day and then finish work, leave the office and come back home. But I think for me that, you know, working at home, the line was so blurred between work and home that I never felt that I could switch off from either. So, you know, as soon as I got the go ahead to come back in the office, I I was straight here because I need that. I need that separation. I need that structure. Mm. But, you know, it's kind of out of my control. So I've just got to roll with the punches, you know. Yeah, exactly. Be as adaptable and kind of flexible as you can. But you know what? Yeah, again, that varies varies for so many different types of people and what that looks like. But I'd love to talk about lockdown all day, but you're on peace and no mind, my man. You're on peace and no mind. (laughs) And I need to ask you, as I do all the guests, what does a peace of mind mean to you and how is it best achieved? So I think peace of mind to me is kind of exactly what it says on the tin. Peace of mind means having peace within your mind. Like for me, it's very black and white in kind of the learning that I've been doing over the past year or however long it's been. And I know we're going to touch on kind of addiction and recovery, but what I've learned within recovery, and there's there's something called the serenity prayer. And for me, this is the answer to everything. There is grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, have the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. And with those three things, that is everything I need to have peace of mind because there's, you know, 98% of things I can't change. And there's that 2%, which is myself, which I can change. I can change how I act. I can change how I react. I can change how I respond to things. And everything else is out of my control. And as long as I'm constantly reminding myself of the difference between what I can change and what I can't, you know, it's it's quite easy to be comfortable and to and to have that peace of mind, um, which you know, over a year ago, I was not even fathomable for me to have peace of mind, you know, with everything that was going on within my own life and within my own head. 
it was a pretty chaotic place to be. And definitely, I feel like it's you saying that a year ago that would have been a crazy place and you would have never thought about even the idea of it being present or uh, tangible. Like, And now you, you feel as though you can dip in and out. Is it something you think is a, is a constant uh, thread or is it something you just have to touch base with every now and then? You know, the, the mind and the head is, a, is such a crazy machine that if you lose, if you kind of lose focus on it, you know, especially with me and, and, you know, my kind of overactive thinking. But if I'm, not, if I'm not constantly checking in with myself and monitoring what's going on for me, I could, I could have just spent the past hour daydreaming, thinking about the past, thinking about the future, thinking about what I want to change, what I'm not in control of. And before I know it, I've lost so much time just stressing and worrying about that thing. So it's kind of like, you know, they say it in a lot of mindfulness stuff that, you know, when you're trying to, you're trying to focus on your breath and, and, and kind of and focus on that present moment, if you catch yourself drifting away, begin again. That's really as simple as it is, just begin again. So for me, you know, I don't put too much pressure on myself. You know, if you, if you kind of got a mental slip up and you kind of lose yourself for a bit, that's fine. But just begin again. And that's really as simple as it is. It's got to be something that, you know, once you're mindful of it, it's quite easy to keep checking in with it. It's just, you know, you've just got to be, it's got to be something that you get comfortable with and familiar with, really. I watched an interview that you had online on YouTube. I think at the beginning of the interview, you were discussing how you were like quite a highly sensitive child to, to growing up and stuff. Like, could you kind of frame that for me and explain a little bit what that meant like for you at the, or what, what you experienced? The best way that I can describe it is that I just feel things really intensely. Um, and, it, and it's across the board, you know, it's, it's happiness, it's excitement, it's sadness, it's depression, it's, it's everything. I just feel things. It's almost like my heart is closer to the skin. Do you know what I mean? Like just, it's just everything, everything is so much more, so much more powerful for me. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's partly being a highly sensitive person. It's partly being an empath and that, you know, I mean, it's, it, it sounds weird, but like if I go somewhere and it's really noisy, I get overwhelmed by that. If I eat foods and, and there's so much flavor going on, I get overwhelmed by that. And you know what? I'm the fussiest eater. And I've always wondered what, why is it that I'm so fussy with my food and doing, doing this learning and stuff, I've realized that I get overwhelmed by smells and flavors, the same that I do noises, the same that I do emotions. And it, I mean, it sounds ridiculous and I can't even believe I'm saying these things out loud, but that is just who I am. Yeah. I just get overwhelmed by the intensity of, of day-to-day life. Um, and it's like living life on life's terms. Like, it doesn't come easy for me. You know, my bad days are arguably worse than some people and my good days can be as good, if not better than other people's. And it's kind of like... There's, there's very little middle ground there. Everything's an extreme. And the idea that, let's say, you're feeling really overwhelmed, does that kind of correlate with feelings of like anxiety at the time? So, say, for example, that you're, you've entered a room and there's a lot going on or uh, you, you try some food and it's really seasoned and has all the flavours yeah. of the world. <laughs> um, like, does that then lead to, like, feelings... Like, are you triggered? Like, is that something that just happened? Yeah, I think... Do you know what? I think I am. 
Um, but I think for me, anxiety is anxiety is fear. And I think if you really peel back, you know, if someone tells you that they're anxious, if you really start to peel back what that anxiety is, I think nine times out of ten, you'll realise that it's actually fear. It's fear of not being able to to control certain situations. It's fear of not being able to control the future. It's fear of the past. It's fear of not being liked. It's fear of not being understood. It's all, it's, for me anyway, it's all fear-based. Mm. Um so I think, yeah, I think I don't really suffer from anxiety anymore because I, I focus on what it is that I can change and, what it, and I don't worry about what I can't because mm-hmm. there's no point worrying about what you can't. So I think, you know, I suffered from a lot of anxiety. But again, that was I was, I was living in fear all the time um, and now I don't. So I don't really get those those feelings anymore well but this is it and I, I think you touched on something anxiety and small doses is a very natural process it's only prolonged feelings of anxiety that last throughout the day and are triggered by things that aren't usually fear inducing uh, is when problems are like okay hold on this this might be something worth speaking to a doctor or someone else about it's kind of like you've got a I mean, you know, to get to get scientifical, your brain has neuro pathways, right? And they are they're formed over time. And it's kind of like muscle memory. The more you do something, the more it forms in your mind. And it's like, you know, if you imagine walking on it through a grassy field, if you keep walking on the same path, the grass is going to wear away and there's going to be a path there. But if you slowly start to walk on a different path, the grass there will grow back and you'll start to, you know, create new pathways in your own mind. And that is that is really you know, as simple as it is, the more you do something and the more you train your mind to, to behave in a certain way, the more natural it comes to you. And I think touching back on anxiety and, and anxiety in small doses, you know, we're human beings, we are, we're animals and there's obviously there's fight or flight, which, you know, as human beings is still ingrained with us. But like, you know, going to the shops and seeing some people, seeing an ex-girlfriend or something, you're not going to die. Do you know what I mean? And so to get that fight or flight reaction is not how you need to be dealing with it. Fight or flight is if you step out, if I step out the building and there's a, you know, there's a lion standing outside, that's when I need my fight or flight, you know? And 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 so I, I think for me, like I was feeling these fight or flight kind of emotions and reactions to the most mundane everyday things. Like my manager calls me and says, oh, can we have a chat? I'm thinking that I'm going to die. My body <laughs> behaving in a way that I'm going to die. And, and that's just not how it should be. That's not how humans have evolved. To, I mean, I think we have evolved to be like that in some respects, but that's not life now. You know, I'm not, I, that's not going to kill me. Mm-hmm. So again, it's just creating new behaviours and becoming comfortable with those new behaviours. And would you say some of like, so obviously you being aware that you were like highly sensitive and you had feelings of anxiety, would you say, if we're talking about the addiction as a whole, like, would you say that was potentially linked to numbing and like suppressing some of those feelings and thoughts at an earlier stage yeah i mean i i didn't realize but you know again doing the work that i've done my my addictions started way before i picked up a drink or a drug you know i remember when i was when i was a very young kid i would you know i'd get home from school and i kind of just lock myself away in my room i'd do some drawing i you know as and you kind of look at that and think that's kind of what kids do but like I needed to be on my own. That is how I managed my own emotions was just isolating myself. And I think, I think that that definitely 
carried on throughout my childhood and, and then came into into kind of adolescence and adulthood where I needed to escape those feelings and it wasn't it wasn't any feelings in particular it was just all feelings because they were so they were so intense for me that I needed to find a way to kind of numb and escape from anything that I could um and there's a kind of underlying addiction there's a kind of there's an underlying feeling of restless irritable and discontent and you know when I think of those three things that was me down to a T I was always restless I was always irritable and I was never content with what was going on for me ever um and there's and I guess you know there's there's almost like kind of like location addiction thinking that you know that happiness and and contentness is going to be in the next place it's going to be in the next relationship it's going to be in the next job it's going to be in you know the next pair of shoes that you buy is always going to be next and then you know you're constantly chasing that and the goalposts keep changing as soon as you go to as soon as you reach where you thought it would be all of a sudden it's not there and it's in the next place and you know i think for me that's how i began chasing whatever it was that I was chasing, because it was always in the next place. I was never quite there. I was almost there, but it always, I always just missed it. It's like, you know, if you dangle a carrot in front of you and you keep running, you're never going to reach the carrot. It's always going to be five steps in front of you. And did that make you just look for a new vice to top up? I mean, if we're going to get into, if we're going to get into substances, you know, I started off kind of a casual weed smoker, which, you know, I think a lot of people do, you know, and I was always so anti it growing up. I, I was anti-cigarettes, I was anti-smoking, I was anti-drinking, all of those things. And then, then I found I had my first joint. And it was like, <laughs> like this is... It became pro-legalisation. Yeah, <laughs> literally. Yeah, I was, honestly, I was at, I was at Hyde Park 420. Yeah. I was doing all of that stuff. And I was like, okay, this is, this is what people talk about. And then one day it just stopped being enough for me. And I found cocaine. And from that day on, and, you know, in recovery, we say we didn't become addicted in one day. But let me tell you, I was gone. From that moment that I tried it, I was like, okay, this is what I need. Because the weed, you know, the weed subdued me. It allowed me to tap into a deeper part of my brain. And, you know, you listen to your music and you, you kind of really zone out and you watch funny films and all of that sort of stuff. And then I found cocaine and it was like the complete opposite end of the spectrum. You know, I could go out, I could dance a little bit, I could chat to people, I could chat to girls, I could, you know, I could be that person that didn't come naturally to me. And then I found gambling and then so I, and then I was I was I was smoking to bring me down, I was taking coke to bring me up, I was having a drink to level me out, and I was doing gambling whilst I was doing all of that because it was just something I could do without, you know, without having to call a dealer or to go to the shop and buy it. I was, it's just on my phone. So like, it was absolute chaos by the end of it. I couldn't, I couldn't manage my own life. I couldn't, I couldn't function at all. When did you realise that like, all right, cool, this, this might, I, this might be the moment that, I, you know, something's up. You know, I smoked weed for a long time. I smoked weed for 10 years and it never once crossed my mind that I had a problem with it. Bearing in mind that I probably in that in those ten years I could probably count the the amount of days that I went without on my two hands, right? And it just never occurred to me that it was a problem. I just thought, you know what, I'm going to be one of those guys that has is married, has got a few kids, and goes out in the back garden and just has a little joint at the end of the night. 
and that's fine but then it wasn't until it wasn't until I started trying harder stuff that I kind of realized like like wow I'm one of those people do you know what I mean I'm one of those people that can't stop and it, I realized pretty early on and I remember and I remember thinking like kind of thinking what have I done because I couldn't stop I had no interest in stopping and even if I wanted to I, I wouldn't I couldn't um you know I was I was in a huge amount of debt I you know I was I was purposefully skipping meals so I didn't have to spend money on food and I could just use that money to pick up um but then I remember thinking why is it that when I get home I need more and everyone else can just go to bed and wake up the next morning and carry on as if nothing ever happened but for me I'd go home I'd be staring at the ceiling for hours until I finally called a dealer and I was meeting dealers at like 4am in the morning on a on a Wednesday morning and constantly chasing that and so it was very clear to me that I wasn't like anyone else and it's essentially like having an allergy you know I have an allergy and the person next to me doesn't so they can have peanuts I can't if I have peanuts I'm gonna die they can have peanuts and that's really how I've got to frame it for, you know, to kind of keep my sanity. Otherwise, I could question a million times over why it is that I can't do certain things and they can. But the reality is I've got an allergy, I've got an illness, I've got a disease and they don't. And that's it. That's as, that's as much as I've got to think about it. Because there's something quite interesting about that. Um, and I think you touched on the idea of functioning um functioning whilst under the influence so again we might have come across people in our lives who are really successful and smoke a drink at the end of the night or someone who might go out on the weekend but goes back to their really high-powered stressful job on monday in the city whether that be at like one of the big banks so the idea of like actually identifying yourself as an addict when you think that you're balancing and managing your day-to-day -day life with the inclusion of uh narcotics um can also be quite a hard thing to define like so what what was it that in your mind what what defines an addict and at what point did you realize like okay this is this is probably too far so i think there's a few things i think and this is some, kind of something that i've spoken about a few times with, with various different people um and they think you know to be an addict you've got to be doing grams upon grams every single day of whatever it is right but you know don't get me wrong i pretty much was doing that but I don't think that's what makes me an addict I think what makes me an addict is the reason behind why I was doing what I was doing I think you know there's a certain need to escape oneself right I was I was trying to escape myself and my own mind and you know as soon as you know as you smoke a joint right and you kind of lose yourself for a little bit and as soon as you're you know a joint only lasts for a couple of hours right in terms of the effects of it and as soon as you start to feel your own self creeping back in, it's kind of like you need to run away again. And that's what I was doing. I was constantly running away from my own self coming back in. And then I think there's an aspect of, of powerlessness and unmanageability. From the, from the moment I took anything, I was completely powerless. You know, the, the choice to stop, I no longer had. Um, and then there's the unmanageability, you know. Everything in my life was unmanageable, my social life, my work life, my finances, you know, my, my hygiene, my, my clothing, like everything became unmanageable. 
And I think, you know, to be an addict, you really have to feel that powerlessness and that unmanageability. And I think, you know, there's a lot of people out there that possibly have that powerlessness, but don't necessarily have that unmanageability. And it's when you've got those two things together that is really a recipe for disaster. Did, it, did any um, of your friends or family, like, highlight some some behaviors to you at the time and was like yo you need some help or did they not even know where you just moving in, in i was i was such a conniving little dark horse you know and it was so i figured out ways to be so co- covert about it and and you know addicts are really intelligent people and when i went to and i'm not just blowing my own trumpet but when i went to treatment, <laughs> you know, the, ther- the therapist said to me she was like i've i've never met a stupid addict because the way that the way that we conduct ourselves and the way that we, you know, are able to get what we want is quite something. And and I and I was talking about it today in a meeting that I think for me that the change from becoming just someone that smoked weed to being a full-blown addict was was kind of was so slow and so gradual, even though that the addiction was immediate, the effect of that addiction was so slow and so gradual that people around me just thought that's who I was. So they didn't, it's kind of like, you know, when you see someone every single day, you don't really notice if they've put on weight or they've lost weight. But when you haven't seen someone for so long, you're like, okay, you've, you've changed. The people I was with, I was, I was with a lot and, and, they saw me all the time. That the, the changes were so gradual that they didn't even they didn't even know it was happening. And I'll never forget that in the treatment centre that I went to, they had a family session where you, your kind of family members go to talk about what's going on for them and and how they can kind of help you in your recovery journey. And my dad said that he he'd gained a son that he didn't even know that he lost. And for me, that summed it up perfectly that he didn't even know that over that time I had become something so different to what I was that when I came back and when I started to become myself again, he was like, okay, like this is, this is you. That wasn't you. And that for me sums, especially sums up my addiction, but generally sums up addiction perfectly that it can be so covert that the people around you don't even know that what's going on. I think that was really interesting about you saying like addicts are some of the most intelligent people um, just because of the ability to, you know, find their way to make sure that they can fulfill that need or that hunger. Um, And yeah, yeah, I didn't really think about that. So the idea is you, you identified and at the time you're like, cool, this, um, this is wild. Like I'm living very on the edge and yeah, it's starting to take its toll on my hygiene, my finances, my, just myself. Um, what was that next kind of turning point? Like how did you, what was it like? You just ended up calling someone the next day and was like, I need help. I kind of, I battled with it for a long time and I battled with the idea of coming clean for a long time. Um, but I was so scared of judgment and, and maybe even being let down that I actually just thought, you know what, I'm just going to hold on for a bit longer and, and see, maybe I can pull myself out of it. Or, you know, or that's, that's kind of it. Maybe I can pull myself out of it. And there was, there's just that ego that's like, you know what, I can do this on my own. That kind of just, just keeps you holding on a little bit longer. Um, And to be honest, I became so desperate and things became so dark that I really only had two options. You know, I could either pack it all in, say my goodbyes and, you know, do something really terrible to myself 
or I could kind of use what I had around me, which was an amazing family, really supportive parents that just wanted the best for me and just give it a go. Um, so I made that phone call to my mum and I said, listen, like, you might want to sit down for this, um, but this is what's going on for me. And thank God, within within days, you know, I had people rallying with me. I had, you know, I had a treatment centre ready to go. Everything, everything fell into place. And it's kind of like a, you know, like a higher power thing that would I have done it before that moment that I was really, truly ready, I don't think things would have worked out the way that they did. And it's kind of like, it's kind of like surfing, like you've got to hit that wave spot on to be able to ride it all the way through. And I think that's what I did. And, and, you know, as painful as it was to kind of hold out and carry on for as long as I did, I think someone, the, the person who wants recovery has to be ready. And I think I was ready and I had the gift of desperation that I was so desperate and, and life became so painful that I was pushed to, I was pushed on that wave and I just had to go for it. Um, so were you saying that you felt really dark, like these are like really dangerous thoughts was the idea of like suicide, like sure. looming around. Yeah. And I think depression and kind of being suicidal come quite hand in hand, especially if you don't get that depression under control then that is really where it goes it's the kind of being suicidal and suicidal thoughts and that's somewhere that i i had been in the past not necessarily because of my addiction but because of my mental health as a whole so i think i think it was quite obvious that that is that is where i was going um and it's one of those things i didn't really need to say it um but i think my whole demeanor my whole outlook on life you know, there was no spark behind my eyes. There was no life there. And I think that the people around me were quite scared about where I was going to go if I didn't get myself sorted quick time. And so treatment centres were called um, and you weren't kicking and screaming. You were quite happy, well, quite happy to go at the time. I, I wasn't kicking and, and screaming, but to be honest, I didn't really understand the whole idea of recovery, I thought, I'm just going to go to this place, I'm going to stop using for a bit, and then after, I'll come out, I'll be able to have a little line here and there, I'll be able to smoke a joint here and there, I'll be able to have a drink here and there. And I thought, this is a good way for me to kind of, again, get rid of any responsibilities that I may have had at the time, and get everyone kind of caring for me as if I was a child, and then come out of the other side, and kind of pick up where I left off, but not, not to such an extreme, but to kind of go about my business doing things that I wanted to do. Um, but the reality was very different to that. So when you, when you get in there, can you remember like what the first, first few days were like? Was, this, was, this, or was it you in and out going in there for a few hours and then coming back out? So, yeah, so the treatment that I went to, so there's obviously residential where you kind of pack the stuff and go live somewhere for a month to three months time. Um, I didn't want to do that because I, the logic for me was that, you know, I've got to, I can't go and hide away for the rest of my life. I've got to go somewhere that allows me to deal with the outside world whilst I'm dealing with my own stuff. It would have been very easy for me to go to a treatment center, 
not see or speak to anyone for three months and come out. But the world would still be the same. You know, the dealers would still have my number and be texting me to see where I am. The, you know, I'd still be having to drive the same routes, drive past the dealer's house. The triggers would still be there. And I would have just learned how to live in a very sheltered environment. So that wouldn't have really worked for me. And I wanted to be somewhere that I could go to every evening. And so I went somewhere that was every evening. And then after two, three hours, I'd get in my car and I'd drive myself home. And I'd still be driving past the dealer's houses. I'd still have my phone with me. And I just had to build up the strength to deal with those triggers and deal with that, those urges and all of that outside stuff, which again, I couldn't control. All I could control was my own self. And those first, that I've never really told anyone this, but I told it, I told everyone, I told the therapist and I told the people there that I didn't have a drug problem. I hadn't used drugs for a long time. I was just there for gambling, right? And then a week passes and all of a sudden everyone has to do drugs tests, right? And I'm shocked by this. But obviously you're at, you're at a rehab and obviously they're gonna do drugs test. And all of a sudden I have a drugs test and it comes up negative, right? So then I'm thinking, great, like my cover's blown now. Now I have to tell everyone what's, what's happened. Um, and so, you know, for me, the first, the first week in treatment was complete denial. You know, I was trying to trick myself into thinking that it wasn't as bad as it was and that I could fool everyone and I could manipulate these therapists and, and all the other, you know, all the other addicts or, or, or whatever you want to call them that were there. I could manipulate everyone into thinking, that I was all right and I didn't I didn't really have that much of a problem. But it became very apparent very quickly that I was no better than anyone else there. And uh, so what did how long were you there? Was it a week? Was it two weeks? Was it a, or were you going back and forward for a few months? I signed up for an initial 30 days. Okay. And that 30 days came and went. You know, by that time, I had realized how severe my problem was and that if I didn't get it under wraps, I was going to die, you know, whether I killed myself or I, or I had an overdose or I had an accident or something, you know, the only three options in addiction are jails, institutions or death. I was already in an, in an institution, you know, I'd probably come quite close to jail and, you know, death was only my next drink away, essentially. Um, so I, and I, you know what, and by that point I found I found life again. I found that actually life wasn't that bad. So I signed up for another 28 days and did that. And then at the end of that, I did another 28 days. So essentially my first stretch, I was there for three months mm -hmm. because I just wasn't ready. And I knew in myself that if I finish now, after that first month, it just wasn't enough for me. And can you remember, so over the course of three months, can you remember any like anything that was really striking in terms of teaching techniques or something that really helped you really reaffirm that, all right, cool, this is probably the right thing. Did they, was it to openly start discussing the idea that you're an addict? What, what sort of, because obviously yeah. this is an insight into what a treatment centre could look like. Sure, for a lot so of people. in recovery, there's the 12 steps. There's the 12 steps of recovery and the treatment centre that I went to, we did, is, is a three-step treatment centre. So you work through the, the first three steps of those 12 steps. The first step, is admitting that I am powerless and that my life had become unmanageable. And it's essentially a booklet of questions, basically asking you to write down your, your most shameful, embarrassing, dark moments about your behavior in that addiction. 
and and they basically say that the key to the one of the keys to a long recovery is your step one and if you do that step one well that's a good foundation to keep recovery my step one was the most horrific thing i've ever written right writing in plain english all the things that i'd done the behaviors that i i had the people that i'd harmed the damage i'd done to myself you know the stealing the manipulating the cheating the lying the the health issues the, the the lack of hygiene like all of this stuff that i had to write there there was no question in my mind that after doing that that i wasn't an addict and there was no question in my mind that doing after doing that that i wasn't powerless no one no one wakes up one day and says you know what when i'm older i want to steal from my family i want to owe money to drug dealers i want to go 3 days without showering I want to wear the same clothes over again. That's that's not an ambition of anyone's. So that is how I knew that actually I have a disease and it's something that I need help with and that like you know if you hurt your foot you go to a doctor if you have the disease of addiction you go to rehab or you go to you go to an NA meeting or an AA meeting or a SLA meeting or any of these meetings to help you. Um and for me the the biggest turning point was my step 1 and then there were countless other moments in treatment that you know i kind of i looked around me and i was like wow like this is where i need to be you know there's group therapy which is essentially a group of addicts talking about what's going on for them you know and everyone's they they say to um look for the the similarities and not the differences because the circumstances might be quite different but the feelings and the emotions behind it are more or less always the same so hearing what other people are going through and how they're dealing with it is very interesting and also i did a lot of equine therapy which is therapy with horses which interesting sounds crazy but <laughs> horses horses as an animal they have what's called a, everyone's got what's called a limbic system which is mm-hmm. essentially the emotional part of your brain and horses have the biggest limbic system of any animal so they're very emotional creatures they're very sensitive and they can they really they can kind of read human beings and human emotions um so you know there'd be there'd be six seven of us standing in a paddock and there would just be horses doing their own thing running running around like bucking each other chasing each other rolling on the floor and it's and it's really interesting because we had to basically identify parts of ourselves in those horses which again sounds crazy but they basically say that horses but horses are addicts too. and it is funny because like if you picture a group of seven addicts standing in a field like in the rain, <laughs> watching two horses like do their thing yeah. i mean it's like something out of like a some weird comedy sketch but it's an amazing way to unlock parts of you and and kind of identifying with other beings other than yourself what the similarities may be oh man you 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 scored me you've just given me so much you've given me an insight <laughs> and i did not know people use horses and i'm going to probably read yeah. it after this that's crazy um but yeah. when you started to like integrate back into reality i know you're saying you were doing it in the day by like being around your surroundings sure. but let's say when you basically cut off connection with the treatment center like how 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 was that process and did you find it where you did you feel like okay cool I'm like really dependent or were you trying to fill your time with something new that just wasn't going to be damaging it was a, it was a really hard adjustment and there are a lot of things that I 
consciously couldn't do, you know. I was invited to a, a friend's brother's wedding quite early on. And as much as I wanted to go, I made the decision to not go because at that moment in time, I couldn't trust myself yet. Um, you know, and I'd go to places which in the past I had used that. And, you know, I'd, I'd then find myself back in that same environment, but obviously not being able, not, 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 not being able to do it, but choosing to not do that anymore. So it's, there's, there needs to be so much honesty, not just with myself, but with other people. You know, I went out with my brothers, my two brothers, my older brother and my younger brother, and we were all somewhere. And I basically said to them, listen, like, this place is quite triggering for me. I need you to just keep an eye out. And if I go anywhere on my own for a prolonged period of time, don't let me do that. And it's just about building that communication and saying, you know what, I'm not comfortable here or I am comfortable here right now, but that could change. Um, and I think it's I think it's quite easy for people to get quite attached to a treatment sort of environment because it's such a safe place to be. It's safe in every sense of the word. It's physically safe. You know, there's no dealers there. There's no, you know, there's no alcohol in the fridge. But it's also safe because you're able to be vulnerable and know that the people you're with are going to respect you. If you genuinely believe that you're ready then there's only one way to find out and that is by that is by going out there and you know thankfully I did that I finished my treatment and I've been clean ever since and speaking of ever since how how many days now how many days you I am one year, one month, and twenty-six days, which is four hundred and twenty days. Yeah. It's, it's, it's quite interesting. I was always told that when you're trying to give up something or like you're trying to cut like your habits, you shouldn't potentially count the days because it's almost a reminder that you know that any day can yeah, be yeah, the yeah. day that you, yeah. yeah. And, and I don't know how you found that works. Like, do you find that's motivating? Seeing like a year, you're like boom, like so. So in recovery and in in meetings. So I'm, I, I go to NA, which is Narcotics Anonymous, right? And there's obviously Alcoholics Anonymous, there's Cocaine Anonymous, there's Marijuana Anonymous, there's Sex and Love Addiction, there's loads of different fellowships. And a very core cool part of the fellowship is key rings. And it sounds ridiculous, but like there's a... So if you're new in and you've got one day clean or you don't even have to have any day clean, but if it's your first meeting, you get a white key ring. After 30 days, you get another key ring. After 60 days, you get another key ring. I, I wish I had my keys Is with me because I've literally it's got like <laughs> I've got all the colours and they're all different colours. They've all got different dates, right? And I, I I essentially became obsessed with getting the next key ring. The reward system, yeah. So, yeah, it's a reward system. Mm. And although it's a key ring and it and it typically you know it's got no value to it for me, it's everything. It is a symbol of my hard work. You know, they're milestones because for, for a long time, I couldn't get one day clean. And now to have over 400 days clean is a miracle. You know, it's nothing short of a miracle. And what does the future look like in terms of you dabbling with like drink or anything? Or have you just said, look, you'll take each day as it kind of comes? So, so yeah, so for me, it's one day at a time. Like if I get through today and I lay my pillow, lay my head on my pillow tonight and, I've, and I'm clean, that's that's cool. That's great. I can't worry about tomorrow. I don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. But you know, for me, I know in myself that I'm an addict through and through. And my addiction could have gone to anything. I could have very easily 
being an alcoholic because I think with addiction and with substances, like I saw in my own behaviour, you know, I smoked weed for a long time, I stopped smoking weed and all of a sudden I became a cocaine addict. I know that once you put down something, it's very easy to pick up something else. And I know for me, and I think about it all the time, you know, I'd love to go out with friends and have a glass of wine. But I know that when that dinner's over and I go home, I'm still going to be thinking about that glass of wine. So it's just not worth it. And, you know, I've, I've got too much to lose now to throw it all away. And I'm only ever one, one drink or one drug away from losing everything. Mm. And I've worked too hard. So, I, you know, it's not really something that I worry about. And I think a lot of people don't understand it. You know, a lot of people have said to me, so, okay, you, you had a cocaine problem. You had a, a weed problem. Why can't you have a drink? But again, it's, it's the motivation behind it. I'd be having a drink because... You know, I had a stressful day at work, I need to unwind. But then, I'd, you know, I'd have a good day and I'd want to go and celebrate. Or I'd have a mediocre day and I'd, and I'd need to feel a bit, a bit loose. So there's always going to be a reason for me to have a drink. So that's why it's just not really worth it for me. Looking over, like, your, like, looking over the whole period, like, we could say 10 years, what's something that you know about navigating through life? I think that, you know, my feelings aren't going to kill me they're not going to kill me. It's my actions based off those feelings that could potentially kill me. So if I just allow myself to feel these feelings and let them move and let them flow, then chances are what I, what I feel now is not how I'm going to feel in an hour's time. And it constantly is changing. And I also think something I learned in treatment is that there's, there's two truths to everything, right? One truth for me could be you know, today I find it really hard to stay sober. But the other truth is that I'm already doing it. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm already staying sober. So if I just hold on to that second truth and I, and I don't act on my first thought, because my first thought is that, you know what, I'd love to pick up tonight. But my second thought is, no, that's not going to end well. If I don't listen to the first one, just let that first one go. And I listen to the second one, then I'm going to be all right. And, you know, yeah, I think mainly that your, your, your feelings aren't facts, they're just feelings. Man, no, man, you're on, you're on it, man. And yeah, that was, that was really, yeah, that was profound. And that, it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. Um, kind of just drawing to a close, because I know um, you've got a clothing brand. Is it linked to what, what sort of stuff are you working on at the moment? Because you've got a clothing brand called Love and Chaos. So love and chaos, I think for me, kind of says it all. You know, I love drugs, but there were it was absolute <laughs> chaos. That's really that's kind of the name, you know. That, yes, um, the name. Um, <laughs> um, and I kind of just came about it because you know I've always been a creative person, and I and I, you know, I uh, I've always been quite into fashion and clothing and stuff, and I really wanted a way to to kind of merge the two. Um, and I think you know. Although the conversation around mental health and, and kind of emotions, and especially men expressing their emotions, has definitely picked up quite a bit in the past past few years, I think people still struggle with the idea. And I kind of just thought it would be a nice way to for people to express themselves without actually having to express themselves if they don't feel comfortable to do that. Um, and I think clothing is a good way to do that. There's a lot of different brands and, and charities and stuff which kind of 
put a, put a mental health spin on clothing. And also, it was just a way for me to have a creative outlet and kind of let some of my own emotions and experiences go and take them outside of myself and put them into some form of art or fashion and just put it out into the world, really. Yes. And it's, uh, I think you, you mentioned something quite interesting about people expressing themselves in different ways. Um, of, of course, we need to normalise the language around mental health, but there's also a language that can make some people feel quite isolated if they don't necessarily, if they're not used to using terminology like that. So you might be amongst, it just might be a cultural thing. It might be, you know, based on so many factors, a generational thing that some of the, some of the language, so we've got to find different ways for people to engage in conversations without it always sure. being so clear-cut and like Oxford Dictionary terminology. It's like, no, 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 that doesn't run with some people that I might know as well. But, man, like, where can people find you on socials? Give us your give us your handles and all of that. You can yeah. follow me on Instagram, <laughs> uh, Booker. You can uh, go to my website, talbooker.com. You can go to my brand, shoploveandchaos.com. You can find me on Twitter, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. Um, so, yeah, all of the great handles. Make sure you follow. But before we go, three mini questions I want to ask you. Number one, what's the happiest day of your life? Oh, what's the happiest day of my life? You know what? It, it might just have been my one-year cleaning day. Or two days before that, my family threw me a surprise party with my sponsor and a couple of friends and my family. And I think that is up there for sure. Yeah, just to look back on what I've achieved and the people that I have around me. Yeah. Jeez. Nice. Um, something that overwhelms you? Oh, everything. <laughs> um... Something that overwhelms me. Um, walking into a, a room filled with people that I, I know on my own. That, that is a lot. <laughs> um, and just final, um, what's the best piece of advice that someone else has given you? Uh, let go and let God. That's it. Let go and let God. Man. That's strong. Yeah, that's, a good um, one. yeah, yeah that. that's strong, man. I'm definitely <laughs> gonna have it. Stick it on my wall. Bro. Yeah. Um, thank you for coming on today. Pleasure.